Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Matthew chapter 5, let's look at verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand... And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Grass withers, the flower fades, and the word of our God stands forever. Quickly, turn with me to 1 John chapter 2 as well. 1 John chapter 2 by way of opening sort of illustration, 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John chapter 2, 15 and 17 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, And the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Fairly recognizable passage. It's giving the believer warnings about how we relate to this world. And John just flat out saying, do not love the things of this world. And he lists out this kind of trilogy of of, um, of uh, repeated summary of what the world is. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And so there's this clear directive upon the Christian to not live enamored with the world or the things of this world. Okay, so that's just, I mean, you can't, it's hard to misread that text. <laughs> Do not love this world or the things of this world. They cannot be the primary uh, things of our affections, the, the things that are transient, the things that are, that are seen, but they, they're passing away. They cannot be the things that we love, which then provokes this question. What is our relationship to the world then supposed to be? We have a clear command from John not to love the things of this world. What is our relationship with the world supposed to be? In a very real way, we, we do live in the world, like we're here. We can't escape it. We, we all have our existence in a corporeal space-time reality. How then is the Christian, the ones who belong to a different kingdom, how are they to live in this world? That's what the whole Sermon on the Mount really is about. It is this directive, it is marching orders of how the king's people live like the king's people. And it's important to, to remember that At the front end of this, the Sermon on the Mount is not a description of how to become the king's people. 
We're not reverting back to, here's the list of do's and don'ts so that you can uh, achieve Jesus' favor at some level. We are passionately committed to the spread of the good news of the gospel, which is not try harder, do more, but is realize that in all of your trying and all of your doing, it is still plagued with sin. And what you need to do, what we all need to do, sorry to use the you term, but what you need to do, and me included, is turn from sin, repent, confess love for the world, and turn to Jesus, right, who came to earth, lived the righteous life we should have lived but failed to do, took our punishment upon himself on the cross, resurrected from the grave three days later in victory over sin and death so that every one of us, every one of you in this room this morning, turning from your sins, looking to Christ and trusting him, you can be transferred out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. You can become a citizen of God's kingdom. Citizenship fellow heir with Christ in the kingdom of God. That is the good news of the gospel. And so what we hear in the Sermon on the Mount is not how to become a citizen, but if you have turned from your sin, if you're seeking to kill sin and repent of sin and trusting in Jesus, you are now a citizen of the kingdom. And here's what citizenship looks like, okay? That's what Jesus is, des is describing for us. Here's what citizenship looks like. And so then as a citizen of a different kingdom, what is then our obligation or our relationship to this world? For some, there's a couple of different views on this, right? For, for some, there's an obligation upon the church that if it wants to continue to reach the world as it changes, the church better change with it. If we want to reach the world, if we want to continue to have influence in the world, we better change because the world around us is changing so much that they'll never listen if we don't change right with them. And so we've got to get, we let the world dictate to us at some level what we're supposed to be. Churches do this. They let the world dictate to them what they should be because they're afraid of losing their appeal. If the, church, if the world doesn't like this attitude or this behavior or this truth, then we must, let's bury that. Let's put it on a back burner. Let's not talk about it. Let's maybe deny it altogether so that we can be, the world can accept us. And for some, that's the way that you do church. That's one way of living with the world is just become just like it. Like, right? And when you put at your pinnacle, what we want more than anything is to have a full room. And so what we've got to do is be as appealing to the world by becoming just like them so they want to come. But what we see that how we see a great uh, emptiness to that reality and to that objective. If you can get the church um, to, to, to be just like the world around us, why bother coming to church to hear anything because you're already just like what's in the church? It's a really self-defeating philosophy, and it's exactly what happens. And this is not the way Scripture commands the church, the people of the kingdom, to live in relationship with the world, right? We do not want to just take the world's ways into ourselves. But for on the other end of the spectrum, the obligation is upon the church then to become completely isolated from the world. Let's build a monastic community. Let's go build a commune somewhere and just totally cut ourselves off from the world and just become isolated from the world and just keep safe. We're just, we, we, we have this, we're citizens of a kingdom. Let's build our little enclave of who we are and just make sure that the pollution that's in the world 
doesn't affect us. And so we're not going to interact. We're not going to, we're not going to have relationships outside of where we, where the safe ground is. We're going to totally isolate and become very much insular. We're going to, instead of being overly engaged, trying to become the world, we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum and, and not uh, be totally isolated and cut off and kept safe. But as soon as you do, you realize, as soon as the church begins to do this, or you begin to adopt this sort of thinking, you begin to realize we can't fulfill our vision statement very well if the third point of our statement is the mission of God to give every man, woman, and child repeated opportunity to hear and respond to the gospel. <laughs> well, if we become totally isolated and cut off, who, who, who are the feet that go and share this good news? It's to, it, it is not the biblical way of engaging with the world. Becoming like the world is not the way. I feel like the Mandalorian. This is not the way. <laughs> Sorry, some of you Star Wars get this. That's not the way. Extreme isolation, isolationism, that is not the way either. Jesus says, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. Uh, there's a few Mandalorian watchers out there. It's good to watch it. So what is the way? What is the way? How do citizens of this kingdom, how do we interact with this world? And that's what Jesus is addressing here in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's really fun to, like we on Wednesday, one of our Wednesday night discipleship communities, are our only one right now, but is, is working through Ephesians, which is a very didactic book. Like it's, it's a teaching book. And so you can, you can get so bogged down in Ephesians. You can go line by line, every little truth and principle, and really dig in. It's in the, I love doing that sort of work uh, when you're studying Scripture. The Gospels, they're just a little different. And Jesus, in this teaching, it isn't so much tearing out every line here. He's putting up a big central idea. He's putting forward a big central idea, and we want to grab this big central idea. Well, that's what he's addressing in this section of the Sermon on the Mount. And there are two illustrations. There are two illustrations that Jesus uses to describe the citizens of the kingdom and their relationship in the world. And they are salt and light, right? We read them just, everyone knows what salt is. Everyone knows what light is. Jesus is a great communicator. I mean, he says many things to obscure the truth. But this illustration he says, we are to be his disciples, his people, citizens of the kingdom. We are to be salt and light in the world. So before we, though, dig into salt and light, there are some presuppositions that we first must understand. In order, to, the world needs salt and light has a certain, has a certain um, presupposition or a, an undisclosed, uh, an underlying assumption about the world that we got have to notice. And it is this, the world in its natural state is decaying and dark. The world in its natural state is decaying and dark. The whole point of salt, now some of us, we just use salt mainly now because it makes our salsa or whatever, makes it taste better, makes our chicken taste better. We use salt mainly for flavor now, right? Unless we have a, unless we terribly have a low sodium diet and I'm apologize I feel bad for that for you because salt's wonderful <laughs> salt always salt your salsa at El Vaquero trust me on this it just makes it so it's just one anyway uh, so but it should totally changes it but in this context salt is less about the, the flavoring of the of the meat or of the food it is about a preservative 
That's how they didn't have refrigerators back then, right? They didn't have ice. They didn't have electricity, all these ways to preserve their meat. So what did you do? You packed it in salt. You just packed it and packed it in salt, and that delays the decay. That delays the, the, the wasting away. It keeps food preserved. It is a preservative. It is a preservative. And so this reality is that, and what a light does, we all know what light does. It brings, when I turn the lights on here, it's dark up here, and then all of a sudden it shines a light. The reason why the world needs salt and light is because in its natural state, the world is decaying and it is dark. If the world is just left to run on its own course, things will not get better and better and better. You know, that was kind of the enlightenment idea, right? Is that if we just educate people enough and we, we rally together and we let the goodness of man really sort of prosper, the world's going to be amazing, right? And there was a post-millennialism, you don't have to know what that is, was real popular because we were convinced the world's just getting better and better and better. Aren't we wonderful? And then World War I hits, you know, and then we, well, technology did not help there. And then our technology continues to increase and then World War II hits, and the, the ability to kill masses of people is outrageous. The world left to itself is not going to get better and better and better. It is decaying. It is getting darker and darker and darker in many regards. So sinfulness left unchecked will multiply quite happily, and the world is quite dark. There is great need for the light of truth because darkness can never produce light. Something outside of darkness must be introduced to bring the light into the darkness. Darkness does not naturally just become light on its own. The sun has to come up. The lights have to go on. A candle must be lit. Something from outside of it must happen or it remains dark. The world is decaying. The world is dark. And so Jesus uses these two illustrations. Citizens of the kingdom, how we relate to the world is we are salt and light. So that's the underlying assumption, the presupposition. And so then, as the king's people, we are to be a distinct people. If I were to give you the, the big idea this morning, it is that the king's people are to be distinct and displayed. Sorry, that's a little bit of my Baptisty coming out. I had two, two words to start with D. Our, our, the citizens of the kingdom are to be distinct and displayed. Salt and light, distinct and displayed. We are to be a distinct people, preserving and working against the decay and shining a light into the darkness. J.C. Ryle, in his commentary, he says this about this text. He says, Surely if words mean anything, we are meant to learn from these two figures, meaning salt and light, we are meant to learn from these two figures that there must be Something marked, distinct, and peculiar about our character if we are true Christians. There must be something marked or marked. There must be something particular, something distinct, something peculiar about our character if we're to be true Christians. Salt is definitely not food on its own. Right? It's, it's its own thing. It's something separate from the food, something decidedly distinct from the food that then when it comes in contact with the food makes this great change. The same with light. It is not darkness. It's distinct from it. But when it's brought in, it, it makes a great difference. Our goal cannot 
be to be the world or to look like the world. We ought not be surprised if the world does not like what we do. We, we get done in the Beatitudes, right? And the, the last Beatitude there is, Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then I said last week, it's the epilogue, but it's almost kind of the transition point. Blessed are you when people persecute you, revile you, and utter all sorts of evil against you falsely on my account. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That's the end there of the Beatitudes. And Jesus has this transition recognizing that the world will not applaud your love for Jesus. But that's not, the point of, that's not the point of being members of the kingdom, is to get the world's applause. We're not to be the world. We are to be salt and light in the world, something distinct from the world. It is okay if as a believer in Jesus, there is something distinct about who you are. There's something different about the way that you live and do life. A Scottish pastor back in 1953 remarked on this reality by saying in an article he wrote, the greatest drag, this is in 1953, so think 70 years later, the greatest drag on Christianity, Christianity today, the most serious menace to the church's mission is not the secularism without. It's not the world out there. The greatest drag on Christianity today is not the secularism, secularism without, it is the reduced Christianity within. <laughs> that, is a, that is a stern rebuke. That the, the biggest uh, opposition, the greatest drag on Christianity, the serious menace to our mission to be salt and light in the world is not that the world is getting dark and, and decaying. That's been the case all along. That's its natural state. It is the church losing its saltiness and its lightliness. I don't know if that's a word. Its brightness. That is the greatest danger upon the world, he says in 1953, upon the church and its mission. And I think that's much more true today. It is we, the king's people, who are to have an effect on the world, not the world to have its effect on us. We are to have our effect upon the world, not the world, its effect on us. It's clear from verse 16, I mean, going clear to the end of what we read, but main idea is coming out there from Jesus. He's saying, verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Why be salt and light? So that they, those that are not the salt and light, might see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That there is a, there's an influence that is had there. We are to be distinct. That means our deeds will have to be distinct and be noticed. And so therefore they must be then not only distinct, they must be done in the world to be noticed. Which brings me to the third point this morning. Not only must we be distinct, we must also be displayed. We must also be displayed. We must have some touch point with the world. And there's a fine line here, right? This is very... This is where people get worried, you know, how, okay, how much interaction are we going to have? We need to be distinct, but we also must be displayed or have a point of contact. Having salt on your shelf, back in the olden days, is not going to preserve your meat, <laughs> right? It's like, I got, yeah, I got all kinds of salt, but my, 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 my food's all spoiled. Why? The salt never came in contact with the decaying. I have all kinds of lighters and candles in my drawer, but the lights are out. 
it's because that the lights need to come in contact at some level. They need to be put on display. That's what Jesus is saying about the light, right? City set on a hill is not hidden. Don't get a light and put it under a basket. You put it on a stand that it may be displayed, that it might have contact in this world. The king's people are not called out of this world, but are called to a definite distinctiveness from the world while remaining in it. While remaining in it. And I bring that, I get that off of John 17. Look at, uh, this is the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And he prays for his disciples. This is a fascinating passage of scripture. But John chapter 17, verses 14 through 19, Jesus praying for his, his people, his, the citizens of his kingdom. He's praying for them. And he says, praying to God, the Father, I have given them, verse 14 of chapter 17, Gospel of John, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You can see the similarity of the Sermon on the Mount, the persecution, the hatred for the citizens of the kingdom. He says, verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This isn't escapism from the world. Jesus himself doesn't pray, get my people out of there. They're in the world. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. Sanctify, make them holy, set them apart. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Not only are we called to be distinct, missio, Latin term, mission, we are called to be sent into the world, to be displayed, distinct and displayed. And for your sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. Here's the thing, Missio. The calling of discipleship is a calling for us to be distinct from the world. Absolutely. We cannot shy away from that reality. The way that you run your life, the way that you love others, the way that you run every category of your life is going to be distinct. And the world will not always celebrate the way that you do those things. That is to be expected. But it is not just distinctiveness, it is also display. As, as important as distinctiveness for the furthering of the mission, for the spread of the gospel in the world around us, is that we live that distinctiveness deliberately in the world, in front of our neighbors, with our neighbors, in the community. I wouldn't say that's the main point of our existence but absolutely one of our main consequences of our existence. And I'd base that off of a couple of passages. I don't think we have time this morning to get into both of them because I've probably I've rambled on on other stuff too long. But 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12, Peter writing, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. There's that holy, sanctified. There's this set-apartness, distinctiveness. You're a holy nation. You are separate. You are, you are God's people, right? You're sanctified, set apart for him, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If you're a King James person, so that you might show forth. I think it's actually shoe forth, S-H-E-W, the old King James way of saying. So you might shine forth, essentially, this truth. Why are we called to him? Why are we distinct? So that we might shine forth his excellencies. Distinct and displaying. Distinct and displaying. Likewise, Philippians chapter 2. We will just breathe in briefly because I'm not going to spend much time in them. Philippians chapter 2. 
verses 14 and 16. Uh, yeah, verse 14, just Paul writing here, talking to the church, citizens of the kingdoms, kingdom. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. There's this, there's this reality that as Missio Church, as citizens of the kingdom, not only are our lives distinct, but they are a testimony. They are a witness. They are to be displayed. Not only are we to be distinct, we are to be displayed. So how does this play out in our lives? Often in very clear, obvious ways. If you're in school, if you're an elementary kid listening, there's very few of you. You're an elementary kid, but you're not listening. That's all right. You're being quiet, and I appreciate it. If you're an elementary kid, we, this would be a good object lesson for all of us. If you're an elementary kid, and there's an, a new kid moves into town on the playground, and, and no one likes him, everyone wants to make fun of the new kid, and the first few days, you get caught up in it as well. They make up an uncreative, bad nickname for this new kid, because that's bullies are usually not very creative. And, and so everyone's mad at the kid, and you go home at night, and you're maybe convicted that you know, I don't know that I should be mean to this kid. Uh, God calls me not only to love my neighbor, to love even my enemy. And this guy's done, this kid's done nothing wrong to me. So tomorrow I'm going to go to school and I'm going to be nice to the new kid when all of my friends want to be mean to him. And that is part of being salt and light in the world, in the elementary school, is this, re I'm going to live distinctly and put it on display. And, I, and honestly, not everyone may celebrate you for that, Right? Not everyone is your, there's a large percentage of group that would not celebrate you for being salt and light in the world. And we can see that I think there's a sense in which just living differently in the world does produce conviction and a kind of testimony. The way husbands and wives treat each other, the way when you get together in a group, and the way a husband and a wife relate to each other in a world that has, um, that, that marriage is such a wreck in our culture right now and in our community even. How husbands serve and love their wives as Christ loved the church. How wives respect and love and cherish their husbands. This mutual give and take relationship is a way to be salt and light in the world. That as you as a couple live in the world and all these other couples around you and you see them catting at each other and, and tearing each other down and keeping secrets from each other and all these things going on. We live distinctly as salt and light in the world. The way you parent, uh, the, the living out the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control, against such thing there is no law. Walking out our five discipleship outcomes, communing with God, walking by the Spirit, sharing God's grace, serving with your spiritual gifts, stewarding life generously. This plays out in obvious, distinct ways, but it also plays out in less distinct, uh, obviously distinct ways, but very different motives. I think, I think this was a Missio New York thing. Andrew is the one that brought it to me. But talking about qualitative distinctiveness. Yeah, okay, that's a Missio Syracuse thing. Well, it's, it's it, qualitative distinctiveness. In that, not only do we sometimes do things that are just absolutely distinct from the world, but even when we do things that are just like the world does, like go to the grocery store, like cook supper, like walk the dog, like I all go to work, 
even though we're doing things that look exactly the same on the outside, there is a qualitative distinctiveness to them. There's something different in the way that the Christian engages their world. It's the why underneath the actions that are different. We get up and go to, the wor- go to work, so does the world. We parent kids, so does the world. We spend money, so does the world. We go out to lunch, so does the world. We make friendships, so does the world. But what often sets the disciple, the citizen of the kingdom, apart in these matters is the motive underlying them all. The motive, I want Jesus to be known. I want God to be glorified. I want Jesus to be treasured. I want the truth of God's grace to break out into my world. I want Jesus to be honored above all else in every situation. For the disciple of Jesus, this is not an optional program. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You don't pick salt out as like a special excursion on the cruise ship of Christianity, right? You've been to those places that are an all-inclusive resort. It's like, I'll take this uh, excursion and I will, yeah, I'll go, I'll go snorkeling here. And like, uh, so we, we got the cruise ship of Christianity. It's like, you know, I'll take salt. I don't know, but I'm not interested in being light. I'll, I'll, but that's an excursion I'll get behind. Or maybe I'll be light, but I don't know if I want to be salt. No, this is, not a, this is not an excursion that you pick. Jesus says, you are the salt. If you are his, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light to the world. The question isn't really if you've lost your saltiness or if you're shading your light. Jesus puts those comments there, I think, almost for laughability's sake. If salt isn't salty, it's not salt. If a light isn't lit and shining, it's, not, it's just a hunk of wax. If, it, if a candle's not lit and burning, it's not a candle, it's just a clump of wax. By nature, a disciple of Jesus lives to be distinct and displayed. Lloyd-Jones, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, says this, The true Christian cannot be hid. He cannot escape notice. A man truly living and functioning as a Christian will stand out. He will be like salt. He will be a city set upon a hill, a candle set upon a candlestick. But we can also add this further word. The true Christian does not even desire to hide his light. He sees how ridiculous it is to claim to be a Christian and yet deliberately to try to hide the fact. A man who truly realizes what it means to be a Christian, who realizes all that the grace of God has meant to him and done for him and understands that ultimately God has done this in order that he may influence others, is a man or woman, I would say, who cannot conceal it. Not only that, he does not desire to conceal it, because he thus argues, ultimately the object and purpose of it all is that I might be functioning this way. Application questions. What quality in your marriage, in your parenting, your employment, your free time, your friendships, set you apart as salt and light in this world? Is there any distinction? I mean, honestly, we need to ask those questions of our heart. Time, day in and day out. Am I, 1 John 2, falling in love with the things of the world? <laughs> Am I just falling? Is there any distinctiveness about why I do what I do? Or am I treasuring the things that everybody else treasures? Is there any distinctiveness to our lives? And then, secondly, who can you engage with intentionally in an effort for the gospel of grace to shine forth from you, to put this distinctiveness on display. Our call at Missio, our call as Christians, really, is not to discern the saltiness of our neighbors. Like, we're not here to look around and say, you know, I don't, 
I don't know if sure you're all that salty or you could be a little brighter. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, not going to call you dim-witted, but, you know, you, know, you, could, be, you could shine a little more. <laughs> that wasn't what I meant. Uh, <laughs> our job is not to be the judge and arbiter of another person's or another church's even saltiness and lightness. Our job is to be as salty as we can be and to shine as bright as we can. That's what God has called us to. Missio, get salty. I mean, that, that almost should be like a little, that should be a little model. Get salty. <laughs> Missio, don't throw shade. Shine. Live distinctly and displayed and let Jesus do his work through it. Let's pray. Father, I pray that this morning, going through so much stuff there, but my own heart, God, is that I, I want to take that admonition from 1 John 2 and not love the things of this world, uh, to, but to be salt and light and to be distinct. And so even right now, as we get ready to sing this last closing song together, Father, if there are areas of our heart where we have erected idols, where we have put forward treasures besides you that loving the things of the world, not being distinct from the world, but just joining the world in its pursuits, God, convict us. Open our eyes to it that we might turn from it, run from it. That is the path that leads to death. God, that we might turn and lead to the path of life, treasuring you as citizens of the kingdom, living distinctly on display for the fame of your name, for the spread of this good news of what you have done to make a rebellious people your own through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Work in our hearts for your glory, God, and our good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.